Welcome, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Act Protect Engage Academy podcast, known as Ape Academy for short. I'm your host, Mr. Chase H., joining you as usual from rainy and freezing cold Houston, Texas. I hope you guys are having an amazing weekend so far, enjoying it with your friends and your family. I know I am. I'm having a nice, relaxing productive day so far okay guys so we're gonna do our housekeeping as we usually do around this time please turn on your post notifications you know why because if you do you'll be the first to know when a new podcast episode is streaming so when you're out with your buddies at Buffalo Wild Wings tonight watching the UFC fight and your phone starts going crazy right you get your phone out of your pocket and you look and you see a.b academy podcast streaming you know there's a new freaking episode out and then you can listen to it on the ride home right also if you can if you have a few minutes you can rate us please give us five stars or if we deserve less give us less i do look at reviews and i do look at ratings and i try to fix some things and adjust some things to make the experience as amazing as I can for all you amazing awesome really really cool listeners out there thank you both to the domestic and international listeners I love you guys we do it for you we do it to spread education and the voice and message of the act protect engage academy throughout the world we are now on six of the seven continents the only continent we're not on is Antarctica so we're doing pretty good unless a penguin all of a sudden decides to get a smartphone and listen. I don't think we'll ever get to all seven, but we're praying for that as well. Okay, so what are we talking about today? Oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. I forgot social media. Hey, guys, can you follow us on IG at Ape Academy Podcast, on TikTok at Ape Academy Pod. Now, there's going to be exclusive content on there. I do a lot of little cool videos. I do my visual recaps. So for every audio episode, that I do, I also do a video slash, you know, visual recap. In my little beat studio, I call it, in my room, in my house, I do a little visual recap. It's, it's shorter, it's a little bit more concise, and it kind of sums up, it's like the cliff notes of this audio that you're listening to right now. So if you love video and you really don't like listening to my uh, monotone voice droning on and on, then you can watch the video, we're on YouTube also, Ape Academy podcast on YouTube. Uh, we're on Twitter at A underscore defensive. And uh, we're on Facebook, Ape Defensive Solutions. Okay, okay. That's done. We're done. That's my least favorite part. Okay, so what are we talking about today? We're continuing our Enlightenment Racial Theory podcast series. So what was the Enlightenment? All right, so the Enlightenment, if you guys don't know, and I kind of, I think I kind of just breezed through this. It was a period of intellectual growth, allegedly, right, in Europe from the late 1600s to pretty much 1800s. So throughout the 18th century and for the last part of the 17th century, Europeans were beginning to explore the world. They're breaking out of the European continent and they're coming in contact with various people. Also, they're attempting to define who they were, what their relationship should be to religion, to government, to morality. Um, they tried to establish 
the relationships between people, how people should treat each other, um, how the government should treat the people. All right. So it was, it was a very, very academic, intellectually driven time period. All right. A lot of our most influential thinkers, or at least in the in Western thought, came from this period. Right. Montesquieu, John Locke, David Hume. I can go on and on and on. Immanuel Kant, who we're talking about today. Kant, Kant, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. I'm going to call him Kant. <laughs> Kant. Uh, his name is spelled K-A-N-T, so I'm going to pronounce it like a Philly boy. All right, um, so we're going to talk about some of these guys today, okay? And um, that's what we talked about last time. It's just an introduction to the Enlightenment. And we also talked about the first racial theory that kind of emerged during this period, and that was the theory of degeneration, right? So, degeneration of the races. What that means is this. A lot of Enlightenment thinkers believe that the original man came from Europe. We, we now know that's false. The original man was actually um, originated in Africa, but back then, of course, being Eurocentric, being very, very narrow, in their viewpoints, they believed that the original man came from Europe and that all the other races were fallen versions of the original white man, right? So degenerated human population. So they were the strongest, humans were the strongest in Europe. And as they got further and further away, as they migrated to different parts of the earth and became kind of distant from the cradle of civilization in Europe, they became weaker, they became less intelligent, they, became, they become less industrious, less cultured. They are incapable of civilization, etc. So the furthest you were, you were from Europe, the weaker you were in all levels, right? On all levels. So this is called the degeneration theory, all right? Also, a popular theory was circulating around the time, the climate theory. What that entailed was that people from colder climates between 40 and 50 degrees. I don't know if they use Celsius or Fahrenheit. It doesn't really matter. Pretty much colder climates were superior in every way than people from hotter climates. So what does that mean? That implies that Europeans are superior. So what they were trying to do was categorize people and place them in these different rankings, right? Ranking systems, hierarchies, right? It's what we call it. With Caucasian at the top, and believe it or not, and I know you, you just can't believe this, um, the black African and indigenous were always on the bottom. So not a surprise there because they had the least respect for black folks and for Indians. Um, so that's what we talked about last time. If you want to know more, please uh, tune in. I'm not going to spend the whole podcast talking about the last podcast, but uh, definitely tune into that. All right. So today we're talking about the polygenic theory of race. And we have a few sources, right? That's the second theory. The, the last episode, we talked about the first theory of enlightenment, uh, racial thought, all right? Sources, the myth of race, the troubling persistence of an unscientific idea by Mr. Robert Sussman, great book, highly recommended. Paracelsus, Paracelsus, I should say, from Encyclopedia and Britannica.com, Isaac La Perrier from the Jewish Virtual Library of the Different Races of Human Being from Immanuel Kant. Kant's Second Thought on Race, 
Pauline Kleingeld. Kleingeld. Professor Pauline Kleingeld. I'm sorry, I have peanut butter in my mouth. The Enlightenment, the Pursuit of Happiness from 1680 to 1790 by Richie Robertson. Okay, so those are our sources. They're all great sources, and a few of them are primary sources. So remember, when you're studying history, when you're doing your research, when you're debating Uncle Frank at the, uh, at the table, at the dinner table, make sure you guys have primary source documentation. So you have that original document that you can point to and say, this is where I got it from. Because a lot of people say, where did you get that from? I'm like, from the actual author, you idiot. From the person who wrote it. <laughs> That's where I got it. I didn't get it from Fox News. All right? Okay, so before we start, I, I, I kind of want to discuss why this is important. Because I'm sure there are some of you out there is like, why do we need to learn about Enlightenment racial theory? Well, I believe that kids should learn, in, and adults, obviously, should learn about where racism came from. How did we get to where we are today? It's not like in 2022, we just woke up and we're like, man, this person looks different. This person is, is black. This person is Indian. This person is white. This person's like, no, that started somewhere. And my thesis, and which I'm developing, right? I'm trying uh, to make a thesis for my PhD dissertation eventually down the road, is that my belief is that racial categories and the kind of reliance on these, you know, outdated racial hierarchies and these racial categories that were first developed during the Enlightenment period, they were developed to help bolster and support white superiority over the non-whites of the earth. And this was to maintain power structures at the time. Europeans were dominating certain areas of the world, right? Certain fields. Economics, right? They were dominating the slave trade. They were militarily powerful, right? So in order to further separate people, these thinkers, they attempted to kind of really muscle up on the white superiority theory. This helped to justify African, uh, black African slavery, right? The moral justification for slavery was a necessity because these are very quote-unquote religious people. So they need to have an excuse to enslave another fellow human being, whether to be in indigenous or they be black, a black African. Now, there's going to be people who listen to this who say, well, Chase, you know, black Africans weren't the only slaves. There were white slaves. Yeah, before the Atlantic slave trade started booming. When business started booming and Europeans figured out that the indigenous were not necessarily well-suited for heavy, heavy labor, we're talking heavy labor, right, in hot climates, what happened was they started to colonize Africa, take the resources and minerals from Africa, at the same time finding this inexhaustible resource, this huge continent of people that seemed to hold up well to heavy labor. So these racial categories and this white superiority went hand in hand with the booming business of the transatlantic slave trade. They're, hand, they're, they're related. They go hand in hand. Okay, they're like two links in a chain. Racism, racial categories, enlightenment thinking, and slavery. Enlightenment thinking sets the stage for the justification of black African slavery. That is my thesis. All right, so rant over. 
we're talking with the we're starting with the polygenic theory okay polygenic there's also another name for it it's called pre-adamite pre-adamite the pre-adamite or polygenic theory of human variation existed alongside the degenerate theory and is often in direct contrast to it so we're talking around the you know 16th century all the way up to Charles Darwin this was a very very popular theory okay the pre-Adamite theory is the belief that inhabitants of the new world were not descended from the biblical Adam <laughs> Can you, let me repeat that is the belief that the inhabitants of the new world ie the uh, indigenous people the Indians were not descended from the biblical Adam and this idea was developed by a man named Paracelsus okay 1493 to 1541 Paracelsus was a German Swiss physician and alchemist who established the role of chemistry in medicine he was the first guy to really use chemistry but the weird thing in he was, he was like a mystic he was like this weird like mystical dude who believed in like griffins and like like uh like magic and sorcery it was, it was a, he was a really really strange man um <laughs> i did my research about him so, but he was also a doctor which is insane he published the great surgery book in 1536 and uh was the first to write a clinical description of syphilis which was in 1530 okay he was a very controversial angry and eccentric man who was not shy in his opinions or his love for drink and he was notoriously hard to get along with quote Paracelsus his difficult personality may have been formed from his resentment of his father's illegitimate birth and of his mother's status as a bondswoman he was an angry man and his career followed a pattern of initial triumphs followed by losing battles in the course of which he alienated even his best friends and patrons his wholesale condemnation of traditional science and medicine found its parallel in his rough behavior and in his unwillingness to make concessions to custom and authority this is from encyclopedia.com in any event Paracelsus contradicted the traditional view of the single creation of man right in the early 16th century he argued that people in distant lands were from a different source the same source that had produced nymphs sirens griffins and salamanders all were examples of creatures without souls so if you guys ever heard of some of these mythical creatures sirens are like these these beings that that just emit this loud screeching sound you ever heard of that sirens sirens and then griffins are the eagles with the lion bodies with the wings so this guy was a nut job later <laughs> later in that century the cos uh cosmologist giordano bruno he claimed that indians ethiopians pygmies giants and other strange and far off far off beings were not descended from the same source as the rest of the human world how is ethiopians and indians mixed in with giants and pygmies like what i don't know so this guy bruno he believed that certain strange people that he didn't understand weren't really human they didn't descend from the same uh single source as everyone else did bruno was later burned at the stake 
in Rome in 1600, falling victim to the purges of the Inquisition. The polygenic theory that was the most influential, however, in racist ideology was the pre-Adamite theory of Isaac Laperrier from 1596 to 1676. Laperrier was a French theologian, Bible critic, and anthropologist. He was from a family of Spanish Jews who had been expelled from Spain at the end of the 15th century. In his book, Men Before Adam, published in 1655, which was banned in almost all European countries and burned for heretical claims, La Perrier claimed that Adam was not the first man, that the Bible is not the history of mankind, but only the history of the Jews, that the flood in the Bible was a local event, that Moses did not write the Pentecost, Pentecost, or yeah, the Pentecost, and that no accurate copy of the Bible exists. I can't pronounce, oh, by the way, I'm going to pronounce a lot of things wrong because I'm from Philly and I have peanut butter in my mouth. So pre please excuse me. The ones, the, the um, pronunciations I'm not sure of, I will spell out for you, okay? Broken down, his argument claimed that millions of people existed prior to Adam but they lived in a miserable state. Then God created Adam and began Jewish history in order to save mankind. So Perrier was arguing, was arguing that basically the Jews were descend, direct descendants of Adam and were created to save mankind because mankind had fallen. So Adam and the Jewish nation, the Jewish people were created to save all of humanity and save the world. That there are millions of people who were around way before Adam. So the Bible actually wasn't the beginning of creation, which is obviously a heretical anti-religion, at least anti-Christianity and anti-Judaism belief. And of course, we can all imagine what happened next. <laughs> La Perrier was considered a heretic, of course. His views condemned and he was imprisoned for six months. When he was finally released, he was forced to convert to Catholicism, recant to the Pope, and accept responsibility for his heresy. Despite being outed as a heretic and widely condemned, his polygenic thesis kept being revived over and over and over again. So people kept reteaching it. Although he had already been labeled a heretic, he had to convert to Catholicism, he was pretty much condemned by every major European monarch and religious leader, people still use his thesis. Quote, although his work was constantly being refuted from 60, 1655 onward, his polygenic thesis kept being revived as the best explanation of the new findings in geology, biology, archaeology, anthropology, and history that conflicted with the Bible. So anything that kind of conflicted with the Bible Anything that people at the time that scholars could not find an explanation for in the Bible was considered polygenetic, meaning it came from a different source. It didn't come from the one source of all mankind. According to Robert Sussman, the racist implications of pre-Adamite theory began to reemerge during the Enlightenment among theorists who no longer took the Bible literally. 
So people were starting to break away from just believing everything in the Bible. Like, okay, well, this has to be in the Bible somewhere. Like, I'm going to find a scripture that explains what I'm looking at in the Bible. People are like, well, if it's not in the Bible, then maybe there's a different source of life that's outside of the Bible. And that was like unheard of up until this time. By the early 19th and 20th century, it changed into what developed into a powerful scientific defense of racist ideology. So let's talk about David Hume, 1711 to 1776. Now, if you guys have studied liberal arts in college, whether it be political theory, you know, political science, religious studies like I did, history, philosophy, etc., you probably have heard of Mr. David Hume, H-U-M-E, Hume. In the late 18th century, the pre-Adamite or polygenic theory was much less popular than the monogenic or degeneration theory. This was because the monogenic theory was much more religion-oriented, religion much more connected to biblical theology and scholarship. At the time, the polygenic theory had a small but a solid right, minority presence. David Hume, the famous 18th century Scottish philosopher, economist, and historian, was among the first noted author to adapt the polygenic theory to racial equality, the first one. Hume is another example of an Enlightenment thinker whose true intellectual influence has been altered and whitewashed, right? Wiped clean. No one wants you to know what David Hume really thought. It has been whitewashed over the centuries amongst most academic circles. Hume developed his theory as part of his, quote, inductive naturalistic philosophy. Hume is amongst the, mo the most important figures in the history of Western philosophy and the Scottish Enlightenment. Hume writes in his Treatise of Human Nature, written in 1739 and 1740, quote, the science of man is the only solid foundation for the other sciences. So the, so the only solid foundation we can give to this science itself must be laid on experience and observation. This is from his introduction to the treaties of human nature. So what is he saying? Hume implies that most of his writings are based on observation, not actual fact. There's once again no actual solid scientific method to any of his beliefs or assertions. None of them. He's just observing, right? Personal experience and observation. That's what he says. He said it's the only solid foundation. Experience and observation. In his essay of natural of national characters, first published in 1748. Hume attempts to explore the differences between nations. Hume, in the footnotes, wrote, quote, I am apt to suspect the Negroes and, in general, all other species of men, for there are five different kinds, to be naturally inferior to the whites. There never was a civilized nation of any other complexion than white, nor even any individual eminent, eminent either in action or speculation. No in, indigenous manufacturers among them, no arts, no sciences. All right, let me read that again because I bumbled that at the end. I am apt 
to suspect that Negroes and in general all other species of men, for there are five different kinds, to be naturally inferior to the whites. There never was a civilized nation of any other complexion than white, nor even any individual eminent either in action or speculation. No ingenious manufacturers among them. No arts, no sciences. There, I said it right. <laughs> I messed up the last sentence. Yeah, so by saying this, Hume was applying his methodology of historical inductive reasoning to his uh, observations on human viarity. The problem was his, quote, observation is based on a Eurocentric, ignorant, racist worldview. From the European point of view, civilization has never existed outside of Europe. So what Hume is saying is, look, we are the center, Europeans are the center of civilization. And I can't think of any other nation, any other black nation, I can't think of any nation really other than Euro the European civilization that have any great scholars, great philosophers, great achievements. Europe is just the ish. It, they, we have done everything. Because in his essay of natural characters, what he's trying to do is he's trying to define what make nations different from each other. He's trying to separate Europe from the rest of the world and even countries within Europe from other countries, right? Also, what he's saying is, look, the best thing we can do, the best way we can judge someone is off of how, what we observe, like what we see and what we observe and what we experience in our interactions with them, right? So he was one of the most important philosophers of the Enlightenment. Now we're going to talk about Mr. Immanuel Kant, 1724 to 1804. Following in Hume's footsteps by combining his racist worldviews into an entire philosophical system was Immanuel Kant, 1724 to 1804. A contemporary of Linnaeus, we talked about Linnaeus last time, Kant developed his own unique classification of human races. Kant is widely acknowledged as a titan of the Enlightenment. He is also considered to be perhaps the most important moral theorist of modern times. Of course, this is extremely ironic considering just how racist, Eurocentric, and ignorant his views on human differences were. He can also be considered to be the father of modern concepts of race and scientific racism. Kant's first introduction, he first introduced, I'm sorry, the term anthropology to German philosophy and science, and also was the founder of, you know, many people might be considered at, to be racist anthropology. His classifications of humans included four distinct races, and these were all based on color and climate, okay? Quote, I think one is only compelled to assume four races of the human species in order to be able to derive from these all easily distinguishable and self-perpetuating differences. There are, quote, the race of the whites, two, the Negro race, three, the Hunnish Mongolian race, four, the Hindu race. Kant's white classification included many people no, not considered to be white in 2022. Quote, among the first race, which is located primarily in Europe, I count also the Moors, the Arabs, the Turkish ethnic tribe, and the Persians, as well as all other peoples from Asia, 
who are not explicitly excluded from it by the remaining divisions. Kant believed that all races of men were created by God, but that the characteristics, or germs as he called them, of each were dependent upon climate. All right, so we're seeing this theme of climate over and over and over and over again. Climate determined natural predispositions of character of each race. And once the process toward each racial disposition had begun, it was irreversible. So that was different than a, the degeneration theory where the philosophers thought that if the non-white people returned closer to Europe, that they would actually get regenerated and become better. Kant believed that, hey, this was irreversible. Like, there's nothing they could do about it. Kant stressed that races and racial characteristics could not be undone by changes in climate or circumstance. Quote, for once a race like the present one has been founded through long sojourn, sojourn of its original stock, it cannot be changed into another race by any further influences of the climate. For only the stem formation can expreciate into race. But once the latter has taken root and has stifled the other germs, it resists all further remodeling because the character of the race has now become predominant in the generative power. In her essay in the Philosophical Quarterly, written in October 2007, entitled Kant's Second Thoughts on Race, Professor Pauline Kleinfeld writes, quote, he writes that nature, whose wisdom he praises, discourages the migration of races across the globe by making them ill-equipped to change from one climate zone to another. Kant writes in his essay on the use of teleological principles in philosophy in 1786 that Native Americans are part of a race that are stunted in their development. And this is because their ancestors migrated to a different climate before they had fully adapted to their earlier environment. As a result, they are weak, lazy, and not capable of having any type of civilized culture. They occupy the lowest level of the racial hierarchy, according to Kant. Quote, that their temperament has not become entirely adequate to any climate can also be inferred from the fact that it is hard to find any other reason why this race, which is too weak for hard labor and too indifferent indifferent for industrious work and which is incapable of any culture even though there are enough examples and encouragement in the vicinity namely the example set by the European colonial settlers stands far below even the Negro who occupies the lowest of all other levels which we have mentioned as racial differences all right we're gonna stop there we're gonna take a quick commercial break slash musical break I hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. I had a great time researching for it. Ape.
All right, all right. We are live. We are back, guys. All right, so where were we? You guys remember where we were? I think we we're talking about Immanuel Kant and his classifications. So he basically thought Moors, Arabs, Turks, and Persians were white. And he put the indigenous, he called them Americans, lower than black folks on his scale, on his hierarchical scale of races excuse me and um yeah that that's what he thought he thought they were weak lazy and not capable of having any type of civilized culture and of course that's extremely racist so Kant's unstated assumption which was made explicit in his other writings is that whites are at the top of the racial hierarchy statements like these are are common from so-called enlightened moral theorists and pseudoscientists of this era. Many scholars base their theories on biased personal accounts from travel reports that were written by people who did not understand the people and the culture that they were observing. You would expect someone who, at least on paper, right, he writes about universal equality of all men. He was a, quote, universal moral theorist. You would figure that a man like Kant would appreciate and learn about the differences among human populations, but this is not the case, right? Although Kant's own definition of race is structured only in terms of differences that can be uh, hereditary, and he uses these to explain physical appearance, he still connects his understanding of race to a biased and unresearched analysis of their intellectual capacity and also of their cultural complexity. So even though he says, look, these are hereditary physical uh, attributes, right? There's nothing they can do. It's, it's, it just changes based on the environment, et cetera. So it's natural. He still says, yeah, but they're not as smart. So he's making observations on their physical differences, but then, you know, leaping toward assumptions about their intellectual capacity and their capacity for culture, which has nothing to do with their physical appearance. And he'll even admit that. Put simply, his bias and Eurocentric view on white superiority still influences his understanding of human variation, despite his initial attempts to remain objectively scientific. One of the most notorious examples of Kant's disdain for non-whites was expressed in his remark in Observations on the Beautiful and the Sublime, written in 1764. Kant encounters a black carpenter and observes the fact that, quote, the Negro carpenter was black from head to toe. So, according to Kant, this clearly proved that what he had to say was stupid. And he said so later in the essay. He said, I didn't listen to him because he was, quote, black from head to toe. Kant cites David Hume's comment that no Negro has ever shown any talent concluding that the differences between blacks and whites are, quote, essential and seem to be, quote, as large with regard to mental powers as they are in color, 1764. More similar statements can be dug up from Kant's lectures on anthropology and on physical geography. According to Professor Kleingeld, in anthropology lectures from 1781 into 1782, Kant ass asserts that Native Americans are the lowest of the four races above the Negro. Kant 
According to Kant, the only reason the native is above is below the Negro is because the Negro is able to be trained to be slaves. But it is important to note that Kant believes that Negroes are incapable of any other form of education other than how to be a servant or a slave. So in his lectures, Kant believes that Native Americans are the lowest of all four races, even lower than the Negro. And the only reason why black folks are higher than natives is because you can train a Negro on how to be a slave and how to serve you. But the indigenous people are unable to learn anything. They are completely savages. Kant's belief in the necessity of slavery is reflected in multiple passages from his lectures. Quote, Americans and Negroes cannot govern themselves. Thus, they serve only as slaves. And that is from his lecture on anthropology written in 1780. But Hindus, Hindus could be educated, but in a very limited capacity. Hindus were superior to the Negro because they could be educated, but only in the arts, not the sciences, and any other discipline that required abstract thought. Kant, if judged by today's standards, would be considered a white supremacist. Quote, the white race is superior and is the only non-deficient race. The race of whites contains all incentives and talents. To Kant, color is evidence of unchanging and unchangeable moral quality, and thus ultimately of free will. Kant was a champion of the equality of all men and of civil rights, but only, this is the caveat, only for humans who were capable of educating themselves and thus, they had free will. So the only people who deserved rights were people who were able to be educated, and therefore, by gaining this education, by having the ability to be educated, they had the capacity for free will. If you're unable to educate yourself, if you're unable to absorb knowledge, then you have no free will. Therefore, your only use is as a slave or as a servant. He believed that to be human, one must be able to think moral thoughts, reason, and have the ability, free will, to carry them out. Native Americans and blacks did not have these qualities and thus could not be considered fully human. As non-moral agents, non-whites had much less value, much, much less value. Furthermore, non-moral agents like non-whites, they lacked the moral worth and then, because of their lack of moral worth, became mere objects to be used as means to an end of others. There was nothing but irrational animals, right? There were nothing but irrational animals whom superior moral agents, i.e. whites, could master and rule without guilt. No guilt needed. You could rule them, you could tell them what to do, you can enslave them, you know why? Because they're not capable of free will. They're non-moral agents, and non-moral agents are, you know, not fully human, so they can be enslaved and taken advantage of. Their property can be taken, and their bodies can be used as you see fit. Even Jews did not escape the judgment of Kant. Motives could be good or moral only if they were not motivated by a desire for material benefit. And he viewed Judaism 
as an inherently materialistic religion. He equated Judaism with traits like superstition, dishonesty, worldliness, and cowardliness. We are discussing Kant in detail because he taught a combination of physical geography and anthropology for over 40 freaking years. From 1756 to 1797, he introduced Europe to a scientific concept of race and a unique blend of physical and racial anthropology, first in Germany, which then spread quickly across the entire continent. Anthropologist Nita Nina Jablonski wrote on the impact of Kant's teachings, quote, through his writings and lectures, Kant successfully instilled some of the most trenchant and potent classifications of humanity into the minds of inexperienced and unsophisticated readers and students, end quote. Put simply, Kant became the most influential racist of all time, and his racist and ignorant philosophy was passed down from generation to generation. Ironically, Kant is widely thought of as the most important moral, quote-unquote moral, theorist of modern times, and, as also, and also as the father of modern moral theory. His theories on race have until recently been ignored in discussions on the history of racism. Jablonski writes, quote, in the history of humanity, few intellectual constructs have carried so much weight and produced such a river of human suffering. Philosopher Charles W. Mills summarizes Kant as so, quote, the embarrassing fact for the white West, which doubtlessly explains its concealment, is that their most important moral theorist of the past 300 years is also the foundational theorist in the modern period of the division between Hermann Volk and Untermenschen. These are two German words which I slaughtered. Persons and subpersons. So those two were persons and subpersons upon which Nazi theory would later draw. Modern moral theory and modern racial theory had the same father. So these two terms were what Nazis used to justify murdering six million Jews in Europe, okay? There's two people that the Nazi ideology identified, subpersons and persons. Subpersons were people who could be killed, enslaved, and taken advantage of at will. Persons are people who are moral. So similar to Kant, right? Kant has the non-moral and moral agents. Nazis use similar ideology. I'm not even going to try to pronounce those two German words again. One of the most amazing observations I have read about Enlightenment thinkers is summed up eloquently by Sussman. Quote, the moral contract Kant and his colleagues developed is underlain first by a racial or color contract. It only applies to those of the white hue. Powerful words. And something that I have dug deeper into as I study Enlightenment philosophy. And as I study it and I, and I really dive deep into enli en Enlightenment philosophy, this really leaps off the page, right? Everything that they say is true, right? A lot of it is true if you're white. If you look the right way, if you have the right background, then you can, you can read all their stuff and be like, wow, man, this is great. This is true, you know, like moral, you know, I want to be moral. I want to love all mankind, et cetera, et cetera. 
But if you're not like them, then you are not included in their philosophies. You're actually non-moral. You're actually less than human. And for some reason, this fact has not been, like when I studied these guys in college, I didn't learn this. I learned this as I researched for this podcast. It's crazy. As I have dug deeper into Enlightenment philosophy, this leaps off the page. I purchased a book recently about the Enlightenment thinkers, and within the first four pages, the author praises these men as people concerned with the well-being and happiness of all humanity. And I put all in all caps. Whether, quote, whether by freeing people from false beliefs or by increasing their material well-being, the pursuit of happiness, long before Thomas Jefferson used the phrase in drafting the American Declaration of Independence was the overriding purpose of Enlightenment thought and activity. And that's from Richie Robertson, the author of The Enlightenment, The Pursuit of Happiness, 1680 to 1790. The pursuit of happiness for white folks. He forgot to include that part. Richie Robertson writes, quote, Enlighteners argued that fellow feeling mutual sympathy was at the heart of human nature and of people's coexistence in society. Society was not an aggregation of isolated individuals, but a body of people interconnected by the exchange of emotions. I agree with Mr. Robertson, but for far different reasons. I agree that the Enlightenment, the enlightenment was about coexistence, but only within white society, only amongst European civilizations. Non-white people of the earth are not included in the Enlightenment's utopian vision. Thank you so much for joining us. That's all we got for now. That was a tough one with the pronunciations. Apologize for anything. If you want to know what it really sounds like, YouTube it, all right? Love y'all. Stay safe. Thank you for joining me. Remember, put God first, your family first. Work hard. Grind every single day. Don't let anyone tell you that you cannot achieve what is on your heart and on your mind. God bless y'all. Stay safe. Ape. out y'all see you next week peace